Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In this latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event in our 2019 autumn literature season for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. everyone and welcome to Royal Festival Hall. My name is Bee Colley and I'm Senior Literature Programmer here at Southbank Centre. We have a very special evening for you tonight with the brilliant Richard Ayoade in conversation with Adam Buxton. You may have come to Richard Ayoade's work through his comedy writing, his screenwriting and direction of films such as Submarine and the Double, his music videos or more recently with his whistle-stop trips around the globe in Travel Man. You may know him as Dean Lerner in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, Moss in the IT Crowd, or Mr Pickles in the Box Trolls. And tonight, we have turned to Adam Buxton to tease out the intricacies of his weird and wonderful mind. In Richard Iwade's new book, Iwade on Top, he critiques and argues for the canonisation of the cabin crew rom-com A View from the Top, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. The film charts her unlikely career path from flight attendant to pilot. <laughs> in, a film, in a film that Ayawadi describes as one we might imagine Donald Trump himself half watching on his private jet's gold plated flat screen while his other puffy eye scans the cabin for fresh young prey. <laughs> Adam Buxton is a British comedian, actor, and director who's appeared in films such as Hot Fuzz. Stardust and Son of Rambo. He's the host of the Adam Buxton podcast and is currently working on a book containing humorous essays and stories about his life and career thus far. So without further ado, please turn your phones to flight mode, put your seats in an upright position and put your hands together for Richard Iwade and Adam Buxton. Thank you for coming. So Richard, how are you feeling, man? You've been on a punishing promo trail just today. I've done two interviews. <laughs> I'm shattered. It's, um, uh, gosh, it's hard. Um, I um, failed to promote the book this morning on a radio show. And then I uh, pre-recorded another disaster, which will piddle out into the world. I heard you, I heard you on Lauren Laverne. And um, what was the thing you said about Nazis? Oh, you were saying... You're going to have to narrow that down. It could have been any number of things. If you're going to start bashing Nazis, it's going to be a long evening. Because I... Look. You were talking... Let's, let's take a full picture. You were talking they were about... <laughs> You were talking about the track Don't Stop Believing by Journey, yes. which features in the uh, film... Yes, by Fugue Journey. The top. Yeah. Don't Stop Believing. Yes, because the thing about the song Don't Stop Believing, I don't know how many people know. There's no tune. Don't tune. Stop Believing. Yes, that one. That one. Uh, the, the one about streetlight people, which is a very vague term. You don't know if these people are streetlights or they just like being near overhead lighting. 
or they're just out at night. They leave it open, that's the journey way. But the thing that journey expect from us is just to continue with our current belief. <laughs> they, they, they don't specify what that belief is. And as I said, if that belief is National Socialism, don't, don't stop. Don't stop believing in it. Um, and as I've said, in the, I've called it the most potent pain to credulity in rock. Um, and so I find it a very comforting thing. I mean, Journey are, you know, they're, they're not didactic. I'd, I'd probably call them moral relativists. <laughs> so you brought all this up on The Breakfast Show on Six Music. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at Lauren's face. She was delighted. <laughs> she was going, my job's safe. <laughs> if, if I can get gold like this. And you did that, you did that to... Um, enable you to segue into encouraging people never to buy your book and then describing your publicists as lining up and shooting themselves with one bullet to save money. The, the budget for this is tight um, in, in terms of promotion. They're really hoping that somehow people just feel that it's out. <laughs> um, I said, what about posters? They went, people don't look at posters anymore. They used to in the 90s, but now they just kind of know. It's genuinely a lovely cover, and you look beautiful on it. Who made the decision to totally change your hairstyle um, so that you don't look like the guy on the front end? Yes. Well, I mean, look, there's not a great anecdote other than haircut. It, it really is a one-stop anecdote, that. And I, um, I, I was in a film called The Souvenir, and it has a, um, a sequel, The Souvenir Part 2. And, and in that film I had hair, but dyed blonde. And I just looked like a footballer on the turn. And so I just uh, thought, well, I can't navigate life. Well, anyway, but, but certainly not with a blonde... I had a blonde Mohican in it. Whoa. Yeah. I want to see that film. Sure. What kind of character? Is it like a guy with a blonde Mohican who's very shy? Yes. It's, it's one of those introverts <laughs> who doesn't want anyone to look at them so gets a blonde Mohican to go under the radar. Um, That's yes. a good analogy for you and your career on the whole, really. A shy guy... A shy guy. ...who keeps putting himself out there... Well, look, I don't know... I wouldn't hire me, but um, I, I'm very prepared to disappoint those who will. Let's set up the book. Now, so you told me a while ago you were writing a book and it was all about this film from 2003, View from the Top, directed by Bruno Barreto, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, the dramedy about a woman who dreams of becoming a flight attendant uh, to get out of uh, a, a small town where Silver she lives. Silver Springs, Nevada. Right? Yeah. And I'd heard you talking about it before. I'd heard you referencing this film. I've not really been able to sleep since I watched this film, in a certain way. I watched the film. Yeah. One weekend, my mum came round. My mum's 
very old and she's getting a bit loopy, but my mum used to be a flight attendant. Yes. That weekend when she came to stay, we watched a film with Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen called Long Shot. Okay. Which, we, which was also billed as a, a comedy drama. I gathered the family round to watch it, including my three young children, because I thought it was going to be wholesome family fun. <laughs> it isn't. I'm not going to describe what happens at certain points in the film because it'll upset a lot of people. Okay. So it kind of poisoned the evening. My mum didn't know what was going on. She was, she was drunk on champagne. My daughter at one point had to um, pull a blanket over her head and wail, Daddy, this is not appropriate! <laughs> That's good. That's when you know you're parenting well. Yeah. You made her finish the film, though, right? You're staying until he comes in his beard. Um, yeah. Spoiler. Um, yeah. The next night I say, OK, we're going to watch View from the Top. Yes. Mum, it's about a flight attendant. She goes, oh, good. So we watch the film. It's delightful. It's a delight. Thank you. Yes. I feel a kind of sense of proprietorship over the film. It was in no way upsetting. It is in no way upsetting. Nothing bad happens. Paltrow is beautiful. She's a tonic. <laughs> She's an absolute tonic. And who knew how good she'd be as a blue-collar person? Because you really believe her at the start when her hair is slightly less expertly dyed <laughs> than at the end when she ascends. No one plays chavy like Paltrow. <laughs> it's her Kathy Burke on the short list. I don't think you can say chavy anymore. Anyway, don't worry. We get to the end of the film as a family. Yes. But I was left thinking, why has Richard written a book about this film? <laughs> I don't think this is the worst film ever made. There's more offensive films around, more offensively stupid and, and badly made films around. Why? Well, I don't feel it's the worst film made either. Um, but there is something hypnotically strange about many of the suppositions in the film, I feel. One Gwyneth Paltrow playing someone who isn't already rich is, <laughs> is strange. The idea that the thing she would most want to do in the world is become an air stewardess in order to become very wealthy uh, it seems strange because w one of the difficulties with um, the, the air stewardess part to enormous wealth is that it is quite sealing. It's quite a se it, 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 it very it plateaus quite fast. You become an air stewardess, as she does, and that, that's it. So. Now, in the film, Candace Bergen uh, plays Sally Weston, who has become enormously wealthy after being an air stewardess, but it's very hard to know how. Um, and, and the thing is, it has this sort of proto-feminist message, which would be great, but she became rich by marrying a millionaire who she met as an air stewardess. And, and so it, it seems to have all of these strange tensions all of the time. One of the things that I find very odd in um, romantic comedies is that there's always um, a thing which is someone is very obsessed with their job, someone is working and they're a tennis racket designer. They're really good. They're working on a new tennis racket. 
that's longer. Um, and so this is going to be... They've got to get the new tennis racket re ready because there's a big presentation to the Yamamoto Corporation on Friday. That's the same day that Billy has his piano recital. This guy's missed the last three piano recitals, and, but his boss, played by David Hasselhoff, says, if you don't come to this presentation, I'm going to get Danny. He's a heck of a tennis racket designer. And he's, he's going to step in. Crucially, at the last moment, he realises, to hell with this tennis racket. I'm going to go to that piano recital. There's a huge hug. And then, somehow, he realises, the way he's hitting the keys... Maybe he could hit the ball like that. <laughs> Maybe he could make like a like a, pia a piano shaped racket, and then like they all run into the boardroom, and then the boss goes, "This guy is what we've needed all the time." The other tennis racket designer absolutely flips out. He's useless, and 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 they get both, and so I think there's this false idea that somehow you can work really hard on your career, burn everyone off and then go, sorry, and then everything comes back at, at the last moment. And that seems, in a way, almost really dangerous. <laughs> like a really... Because it's often right up to the wire. Yeah. They've got to catch a plane. They've got to bribe the person at the desk. Often they're travelling with a the chicken. They're in the hold. They've got to run the last bit all the time. Because a plane has to touch down 100 metres from the piano recital. In a way, I just thought, well... This, no one making this film thought this would be the last film they'd make. Mm -hmm. no, no one thought that. Um, so, like, but what if you imagined, no, this is the last thing they wanted to say. As in, they all know the world's going to end in six months. What do you want to say? And they go, I want to make View from the Top. And to write a book imagining the best of it. Imagine, imagine that everything in it was deliberate. Like Rob Lowe only being in it for one scene. Yes. Imagine that. It's like he filmed it on the way to another film. <laughs> anyway, this, this is a very circuitous way of saying I thought that you were a bit odd for writing a book about... You could have stopped after the word odd. <laughs> about this film, yeah. this sort of inoffensive film. Uh, a lot of effort has gone into all the words. <laughs> Choosing all the words. I mean, it's really... You've thought about all the words. It's great. I've tried to order the words. There are also little pockets of memoir in there. Are those real yeah. or are those sort of fictionalised... They're, well, um, they're semi-real, yeah, in a way. Real. As in, I did live in Ipswich. I sort of exist. Um, and so that's brought to bear. But, um, you know, I, I didn't rent a tuxedo to go to Happy Eater. Right. But you did go to Happy Eater I did go to Happy Eater, yes, because um, I lived um, near Ipswich, Martlesham Heath, which is right next to the A12. And they had a happy eater on the ring road. And so we'd always pass it as we w went home. And I thought, that guy looks like he's enjoying himself. <laughs> and so I, I really wanted to go in there. But it, my, my parents had a policy about not eating out. 
You could read that bit. Do you want to read I, a bit? I, I could try and read that bit. A view from the road. You see, it's all LinkedIn. It's not just... <laughs> a view from the road. Happy eating. From the age of six, my family, all nuclear three of us, lived in the rightly renowned district of Martlesham Heath, a sophisticated enclave about 12 clicks east of Ipswich, nestled neath the sheltering shadow of one of British Telecom's most glorious industrial parks. It was far away from the distracting bustle of society, yet still close enough to the A12 that you could forever hear its roar in your dreams. Every day when we drove to school, or to the nearest shop for fresh earplugs. We would pass our local Happy Eater, branch number 89 of the franchise. For younger readers, or older readers, who are middle class and, and up, the Happy Eater chain was created to rival Little Chef, which until then was the only national network of roadside restaurants in Britain. Before, if you were out on a long car trip, and wanted something to eat, you just stopped your car in the middle of the motorway, popped on your hazards, and ate your slice white straight from the foil. <laughs> I became obsessed with that happy eater. I would beg my parents to let me eat there. They always refused. What do you want to eat out for? My parents would ask. There's food in the house. Also, why are you bothering us? Can't <laughs> Can't you see we're watching the news? <laughs> when my parents weren't watching the news, they were either waiting to watch the news or recovering from watching the news. <laughs> the news confirmed their feeling that things were terrible everywhere and there was nothing anyone could do about it apart from keep abreast of developments. <laughs> I've avoided the news ever since. Yeah. And that's true about your folks in the news and about they, you yes. uh, being wary of the news thereafter. They were obsessed with the news. They, watched, they were continually watching the news. And it, it never felt that they could really do anything about it. That's the news. Yeah. And I, you see, I remember once watching um, Newsnight and Jeremy Paxman was interviewing um, a politician. And he said, what do you think the public will make of this? And I thought, I'm the public. Why are you talking about the public like there's some other thing? As if, oh, the people watching this show, we're, we're different to the public. It just felt like sort of concentric rings of in-crowd, whereby I kind of felt, well, you're not actually talking about what's really happening, otherwise we'd know what was happening. So you are not currently addicted to... News 24 with the uh, collapse of democracy in the <laughs> United Kingdom. No. <laughs> because I'm... you said, we were talking about this earlier on, and you said that you, you have a sort of completist nature. Yes. This is why the internet is stressful. Because if, if you have a completist nature and you go, well, I'd like to read all of this, <laughs> that's bad. So it's much better to, you know, say, pick someone like John Steinbeck, because you can read all of his books. 
Um, whereas the news, I mean, it's 24 hours a day. So if, if you want to finish it, that, that's not compatible with life. Do you ever have the thing that I, I know a lot of people in our profession do, which is a, a sort of paralyzing sense of pointlessness? You know, especially, especially when you, especially when you occasionally uh, are exposed to news. Yeah. And if it's upsetting or confusing or just, just you sort of think, oh shit, how am I going to carry on doing my book about View from the Top? That never bothered me. I, <laughs> I, I knew this was important, and I could, I could tell. There, there's no doubt. From no, when I, mean, I, watched, I don't mean to imply that it's not the important. The next day after yeah. I watched this film, I started work on an academic essay about <laughs> View from the Top. There was no doubt that I had to process this. Yeah. It's a bit like, it feels like there are people in the world, like those people who make sure that all of the ingredients on... Um, you know, a packet of skips vaguely won't kill you. And you go, okay, they seem to think it's... A, it, tell me if this is going to kill me. If, if, if this packet of crisps is going to kill me, I'll, I'll find out, probably. But up until then, I'm not going to look into it myself. I'm going to trust the other people. So I think the crisp analogy really flew. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a trusting person. Mm. However, there are throughout the book, little tangential threads where uh, you kind of... Well, I mean, obviously, Gwyneth Paltrow's an interesting case. Yes. Because she's a person um, who seems to sum up a lot of modern values in a lot of ways. Maybe a bit like the Kardashians do, and people like that. Yes. A certain type of celebrity. Gwyneth is the wellness person, which I don't ever understand as a term, wellness. I don't see how it differs from being well. <laughs> I don't know what the noun is. Is it, it feels like it's better than being well. It's like a continual... I think that's the thing. It's, it's a state of being well that goes on for ages. So if you said to her, are you feeling well, would she go... I have wellness. Yeah, because if you say you're well, the implication is that you are at that moment, but right. it's not going to last that long. You... How's, how did the show go? It had wellness. Yeah, well, I have wellness. So yeah. the, the question is moot. They all go well. Where is this bucket going? Will you... Where is this bucket going would be a good film. Yeah. That's feel... like a J.J. Abrams miniseries. Yeah. Speaking of Gwyneth... Yes. Are you up for reading a little bit more? Okay. Which bit... Um, did you have a... Uh, a... A little tangential thing about goop. Um, it's, I, okay. So, does everyone know what goop is? Is everyone aware of one person... And that's Brad Fulchuk. That's her new partner. A view of goop. 
On the 5th of October 2018, after a lawsuit instigated by California's Consumer Protection Office, Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle website, Goop, was ordered to pay $145,000 for making unscientific claims about vaginal eggs. One of the most surprising things about this verdict is that, by logical inference, it must be possible to make scientific claims about vaginal eggs. <laughs> it is also surprising that someone would want to pretend that there is such a thing as a vaginal egg. Vaginal eggs are the result of taking the name of a body part and plating it next to the name of a breakfast item. <laughs> Vaginal eggs are no more real to me than penis toast. <laughs> or anal pancakes. As my mother would always say to me, nothing that can hatch belongs in your vagina. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Southbank Centre Books podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. 